Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have the Ivy guy back with me again this week. Hey Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Hanging in there, I guess. A lot of stuff going on, and things are quite different for us now than they were back at the beginning of the year when we did this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> very, very different. It's been interesting. Oh my gosh, what a year it's been. So um, I thought we could at the end of, uh, after we get through our bad doctor story, we might talk about a doctor who, I guess he's saying that he's got the answer (laughs) to the coronavirus. I don't know. So we're going to put him out there as a good doctor because he was bold enough to go on national television and, and pretty much say, you know, if you take this, if you have coronavirus and you take this, you won't get sick. So We'll talk about that toward the end of the show. Sounds good. Yeah. And then we've got the, our bad doctor story is full of twists and turns. This guy is, it's an interesting take on a bad doctor story. Because when we get into it, you'll, you guys will understand it's, it's a bad doctor story. And, and you'll, you'll know why when we get to talking about it. But I don't know necessarily he was a bad doctor. So that's, I'll, I'll just leave it there. When, when we get to talking about it, you'll, you'll, you'll know why I'm saying that. But if you're on Instagram, you probably know Brian, if you've, listen to our been listening to our podcast for a while you may have heard our episode we've done a couple of episodes haven't we brian i think two before this yeah so but he's with that he is the ivy guy and so he has a uh, ivy course and and brian you know you you haven't paid to come on here or anything this isn't like a commercial or anything so no, no, no. N- nothing like that i asked him to come on because i am i I'm fascinated with, I love watching these videos and he does an amazing job and he puts, he's on Instagram if you want to go see him, but he has a course, an actual Ivy course. And I went through the whole course. And so I had a few questions I wanted to ask him and I thought, um, Hey, when we're doing the episode, I'll just take this opportunity to ask you a few questions. Sure. I, I get the, the uh, privilege of getting to ask you directly some of the, the things I was curious about. So first of all, ma- the importance of maintaining skin integrity um, in our patients whenever we're starting IVs. Sure. Because we all know that, that we attempt to start IVs sometimes and, and we miss and we blow veins. And we see patients whose arms just absolutely look horrible. They are, with, you know, hematomas just all over the place. Yeah. And you were, one of the things that you'd said in your video uh, course is that if you uh, will a- apply pressure after that happens, really good pressure, and um, even you just put on a really good pressure dressing and leave it on there for a while, then it's less likely maybe to cause some of those problems. So some of that can maybe be prevented. Yeah, I'd say most of it can be prevented. I mean, there's some that that's we really can't do anything about. You know, some people are on blood thinners. Some people will take the bandage off themselves and and my grandma's a good example of that. She came in to do part of the video course and I told her to leave the bandage on for eight hours and she took it off after one hour and had a huge bruise the next day. So I'm sure some of our patients are going to do that. That's an important thing to think about because when we are working at the, in the hospital and phlebotomy is coming in to do their blood draws and they put that tight coban wrap around mm-hmm. the, the patient's arm, we might be tempted to go in in a few hours and take it off. Sure. And... Maybe that's not a good idea because that's how they end up, you know, with bruises all up and down their arms. And then after they've been there for a week and a half or so, some people are really sick and they end up in the hospital for a long time. And before you know it, you're in a situation where you can't find a vein anywhere because there are bruises everywhere. Yeah, so yeah. 
thought that was as good long to know. as the vein is still viable. Sometimes you can have a bruise where uh, just a little bit of blood had leaked out mm-hmm. and caused the bruise, uh, but the vein is actually still viable. So in those extreme cases where someone has bruises from you know their shoulder to their fingertips, mm-hmm. we can still use those veins in a pinch. And that's the kind of information, you guys, that's in the course that is really helpful. I I definitely got a lot more confident in my abilities after, you know, watching videos over and over and over again. And I remember um, not too long ago, it's, well, it's been since I transferred to CVICU. um, Someone was like, hey, are you you one of those nurses now? Oh, gosh, everybody (laughs) has to do that. I know, right? I'm standing there and my team leader's like, hey, Tina, are, are you any good at sticks, like IV sticks? And I was like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. And she was like, oh, okay, because up on the oncology floor, there's um, a dialysis patient that has one arm available and they need a stick. And I was just like, oops, uh, shouldn't have offered my, <laughs> my services. Should I bail out of this? Or, and I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. So I went on up there. I was like, I'm just going to see what I can do. I'm not going to even try. I did get it. I got it on the second try. The first try I missed and I got flashback, but I, um, it, well, I I shouldn't say I missed. I didn't miss. It it blew. It was so bad. And she was like, they always blow, honey. She was so sweet. And the veins um, get so fragile after a while. Oh gosh. I mean, chemotherapy and dialysis. So I, oh, one arm, you know, she had one arm and it was just, she just had nothing. I said, I think I've got one more place here I feel pretty good about. I said, if you don't want me to try. And she goes, no, you go ahead. I think you can do it. She was so good. (laughs) And I got it. And I got a 20 gauge right there in her upper, the upper part of her arm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I was so happy. I wanted to go out in the hall and be like, why is there not confetti falling? Like, (laughs) where are my balloons? Where is everyone? (laughs) The celebration. But they were busy. That's awesome, though. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I've also had plenty of times when there was just like an obvious vein right there. And then for whatever reason, I wasn't able to get it. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. It'll make you feel like the biggest failure. Like That's always frustrating. And then someone else gets it right away. Mm-hmm. IVs are something that I feel like nurses are can get very insecure about. It can be very psychological. Yeah, definitely. We write off our, our abilities I think too quickly. Sometimes we're too quick to, to just say, I can't do it. I'm just going to go get someone else. I'm not going to, you know, not even going to try. Especially if that option is there. A lot of people have IV teams and, you know, it's one less thing they have to worry about. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. I think uh, as a nurse, I'm glad I have that skill. I'm really, you know, glad to be able to do that. Phlebotomy is the same way. I don't really want to do my own lab draws. I don't feel like I have time to do it. Just honestly. Yeah. I'm glad to have that skill, but at yeah. the same time, you know, it's, I don't know why, but for some reason, blood draws for me are, it's harder than starting an IV. I think it is harder for a lot of nurses. Uh, as soon as we started having COVID patients and then the lab wouldn't draw them, mm-hmm. I, I had so many nurses asking me how to do it. They had no idea. They don't even know which supplies to use. They don't know which hub to use, how to use the needle, how to close the safety. It was just starting from square one. So you have two, literally two separate ones. One is for IVs mm-hmm. yep. and one is for phlebotomy. So yeah, just because they're so different. Mm-hmm. We got the, uh, I'm starting to film a, a pediatric IV course, which will cover all pediatric venipuncture from neonates up to, you know, peds. So that's starting to happen next week. We'll see. I'll make an announcement, uh, both on my website, email list and uh, on Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's huge because we... As hard as IV sticks are, children, mm. pediatrics. It definitely. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And I, I hired a uh, 
pediatric vascular access specialist from Stanford to help me with this course. That is so cool. She's pretty excited about it too. And and I'm excited to bring it to everybody. I see. Interesting. Wonderful. It sounds really good. It's exciting. All right, you guys be sure and be looking for that. It's uh, just the IVguy.com. The IVguy.com. Super easy. And if you want to email me, you can always email me, brian at theivguy.com. So I guess we can talk about our bad doctor story. I told sure. you guys. It it's is a crazy story. It is. It is a crazy story. It, um, it's, I don't know that I've ever heard one quite like it, really. And I've done a lot of these stories. It is just really bizarre. So this is the story of Dr. Stephen Schwartz. It is a, um, the story was done by 48 Hours, of course, you know, and... He was actually himself, he was the son of an MD, very smart, nice looking guy when he was younger. And then later in life, he was a successful nephrologist, well respected by his colleagues and patients. And a lot of people did not know that he kind of had a rough start early on in life as a young adult. And he, it's, it's interesting because I know some people like this. Actually, I, I'm kind of like this. You'd think you know someone or you have them figured out because you've been dealing with them for maybe for years, you know, and working sure. with them, friends with them. But people are always different in a professional setting, though. Yeah. And there may be things in their past that they're just not going to bring up. There's just not a point to bring it up. Maybe maybe they're embarrassed about it. Maybe they just don't really want to go there. You know, there's just no reason to, to dredge up, you know, bad memories or whatever. Sure. So that sort of was going on with Dr. Schwartz. In 1961, he was 21 years old and he was a college dropout and he was living in New Mexico and everyone knew everyone in this area. It was a small town and he was known for having sort of a a gambling habit, got into a lot of debt because of that. And so there was a local dentist there. His name was Dr. Cook. And everyone knew that he carried around a lot of money with him, just carried, you know, how some people are just like that. They have like this large wad of money and they like to pull it out and pay for things with it. And then everyone around is like, wow, look at all that money. You know, I, I'm one of those people that if I need a dollar for something, I don't have it. I just have my card. And then if I ever have cash, it's spent immediately. I just, I can't keep yeah. it. Who carries cash anymore? I don't like to carry it. If I, if I ever like lose my wallet or my purse, like I'm going to be upset because I don't want to lose my driver's license and you know, whatever. But at the same time, I don't want to lose hundreds of dollars in cash, you know, that's not going to be replaced. So I can't justify myself carrying around money like that, but there are some people that do. And he was one of those people, this, this dentist that we're talking about, Dr. Cook. So Dr. Schwartz, Young Schwartz had a friend drive him to Dr. Cook's practice because he intended to rob him. Now, it's unimaginable to a lot of Dr. Schwartz's uh, contemporaries, the people that know him as an adult, like an older adult. This sort of thing is just absolutely unimaginable to them that this person is would be capable of doing what happened. But he, he fully went there to Dr. Cook's practice because he was going to rob him because he knew he carried around a lot of money. He went with a gun and he demanded money. Dr. Cook was one of these. So this is New Mexico. I imagine this kind of like Wild West kind of doctor. And he was one of these kind of guys that was just like, you're not going to take my money. You'll just have to shoot me. You know, I'm not going to give it to you. And he did. You know, young Schwartz shot him right between the eyes. 
his friend, so in the 48 Hours uh, Mystery video, his friend apparently dropped him off. And when he realized what he was going to do, he said, I'm not going to, I'm not having anything to do with this. And he left. And then later on, he went and picked him up. And when he got in the car, he said that he looked at me and his, he said his eyes were really bloodshot and just, he looked kind of crazy. And he said, I just shot him right between the eyes. For what, a thousand bucks? Yeah, for whatever. Uh, yeah, just however much money he could, he had on him. It could, I don't know. It just, that sort of thing always, it, it just baffles my mind how any amount of money, just as someone could have so little regard for human life yeah to take someone's life like that it's it's just it's inexplicable to me but i always wonder what's happening like in their mind at that time yeah yeah i do too and i know that you know if he had a gambling addiction and he was afraid maybe for his life i'm sure the debt that he had acquired was probably not at the local bank yeah. <laughs> so he was probably afraid for his own life because of that. And maybe that played into it, the desperation, but still, you know, to, to take someone's life like that. And then he actually went to prison for nine years, which is kind of surprising. Seems kind of short. Yeah. I felt like it did seem kind of short. He's, he's 21 years old. He knows exactly what he's doing. It was so premeditated. He obviously went there with a gun to rob him and whether or not the actual murder was premeditated you know they say that premeditation can happen in in a split second if you stand there and look at someone and then pull the trigger you realize pulling a trigger as you're pointing the gun at someone's forehead that you're killing them that's premeditated you know what you're doing at that point sure so to go to to prison for nine years definitely i don't feel like the the punishment fit the crime at all no he when he got out of prison he actually moved to italy and i don't know if he because you know he had some college before because he was a college dropout i don't know if he finished college in prison but when he moved to Italy, he went to medical school there at the University of Torino and then completed his residency at Methodist Hospital in New York and did his nephrology fellowship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. That was in the Bronx, New York. Sorry, I'm laughing at um, Kiki's uh, little insertion things that she puts in here. And she's always like, don't say my name in the episode. But I'm just like, don't put <laughs> stuff like that in there, though, because then you, I get tripped up as I'm reading the notes and she puts these funny little things in there. She said that it sounded like a joke name for a school. <laughs> I thought the same thing when you just said it. <laughs> Albert Einstein's College of Medicine. Um, so she said that he got married and then he was divorced. He had children in that first marriage. And then his second marriage, he, mar- he married Rebecca. They both had, obviously, uh, he did. But she also had children from a previous marriage. The two families did not mesh very well. You know, the kids were older and they just really didn't get along. I don't know that Rebecca was real nice to Dr. Schwartz's children. So Dr. Schwartz's son, Carter, apparently had a lot of hesitations about Rebecca. And he noticed that Rebecca would take money from their joint bank accounts and spend it on herself and on her own children. And she even bought one of her sons, his own Verizon store to manage, which is kind of crazy. And it seems like more of a burden. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds awful. When I was watching the video story on this, and it said that his mother would use money from their joint bank account to buy her son, and it showed a Verizon store, I swear I thought thought he was going to say to buy her son a cell phone, and I just thought, 
Why is that so? A store. I was like, a store? An entire store? That's just weird. I thought that was was so strange of all the things that you could do. But it's basically, I, I, I feel like she just created a job for him. Sure. Also, there was a 20 year difference between the couple, Dr. Schwartz and Rebecca. So some people thought that she was marrying him for his money because he had, I mean, he was worth millions, millions of dollars. 20 million. Mm -hmm. $20 million. And he owned 38 properties around the country that he rented out. So he's obviously a very, very successful, very wealthy person. And there were um, a lot of people, including his son, Carter, who felt like Rebecca was only interested in that um, and not necessarily Dr. Schwartz himself. So at the time that this happened, he was living in one of his mansions in Tampa, Florida. And that's where he was practicing as a nephrologist. And according to all of his colleagues who did not have any idea about the murder that took place and the fact that he spent nine years in prison, no one around him knew that, including his son. Yeah, that was a big part of it. Like his son didn't even know. Yeah. So they all said he was very dedicated to his patients and beloved by his colleagues. So Rebecca was just obsessed Uh, with spending money and always buying herself new expensive jewelry. I mean, I don't feel like that's that unusual really for, for, for someone to have access to a lot of money and, and want to spend it. Sure. One of her sons. I've been looking for a sugar mama forever. They're just not out there. (laughs) No. So her son from her previous marriage, he was into drugs and steal, I guess in order to get money for drugs. Um, and he was always needing financial help. He would ask his stepbrother, Carter, for money. So apparently, when Rebecca was younger, she lost a baby, a two-year-old baby, in a car accident due to a drunk driver. And years later, she became part of the organization Mothers Against Drunk Driving and was even the head of a, like a local chapter, I think. She had access to the funds for this organization. And so a lot of people, of course, found that heartwarming that she kind of devoted herself to trying to do something to help uh, with that since that happened to her baby, Christopher. But she actually was caught embezzling money from the organization to buy herself, you know, expensive things, um, like boats. Said she bought a boat for herself. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty disgusting. If you stop and think about an organization that's literally there, be, anyone who would have anything to do with that organization, I would imagine, is going to be a mother who has lost a child to a drunk driving accident. Um, how disgusting do you have to be to take money from an organization like that? It's just awful. So... There were no sources that stated if Schwartz knew this about her or not before he married her. So whether or not, I, he probably didn't. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I would guess that this is going to be the kind of thing that you're going to want to keep from someone. Uh, she's, I yeah, doubt she's probably be, wasn't on her eHarmony profile. Exactly. Uh, so I, I would be surprised <laughs> if he knew about this. So there are, um, so we're going to, we're trying to get, you know, around. So we, we, we start off telling kind of what Dr. Schwartz did in his early 
days, and that's why he's sort of on the, the bad doctor side. But we have a little bit of a, a twist because things don't actually turn out well for Dr. Schwartz in the end. He had a, a handyman that worked for him for many years. His name was Leo. And Leo was an architect. He built most of Schwartz homes. I guess I probably shouldn't call him a handyman, although I think that's what they called referred to him as. Yeah, they called him a handyman. Yeah, and he but he built homes and I'm pretty sure it said that he made over a hundred thousand dollars a year. That sounds like a little more than a handyman, but he actually became a really close friend of Dr. Schwartz and Rebecca. And he relied on them for his income, which if if he's working for him full time and building homes and then that's understandable so leo moved to the states from albania and he was an undocumented worker he was very appreciative of dr schwartz for giving him work and he was also he also provided leo and his wife with medical care he would just you know basically he was his family doctor i guess so from the outside dr schwartz seemed to have everything together right but on may 28th of 2014 rebecca got home to their mansion there in Tampa and she called 911. I don't know if you listened to the 911 yeah, call. Yeah, she was very calm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was very calm. She, the very first thing she said was, um, yeah, I, I just got home. I just got home and someone has broken into my house. And then she's, she said, I think she said, I, you know, I, I came back outside, you know, so like she basically went in, oh, someone broke into my house, turned around and walked back out. Which I think I would do. <laughs> I oh, I would certainly do that. There's no doubt. That's no. There's no doubt I would do that. The problem with this, with Rebecca's story, is she went in, according to this call, went in and came right back out. But then she proceeded to tell them that they took some jewelry and that they took money. They took. I can't remember if she said exactly how much money, but that there was money missing. She also said that she saw drawers open. And the way that she said it was like, and I went in and I saw that there were drawers open. And I was like, ah, oh. you know, like she was just so, oh, well, darn it. Someone's, I don't know. It was just <laughs> so, oh my gosh. It, it was just, it just did not seem the way anyone, any reasonable person at all would act if you did really walk into your house and realize someone, some strange person, basically someone who, with bad intentions, has been in my house sure. and could still be there. And yet... I'd be pretty pissed off and freaked out. Uh, yeah. So you don't know. the per- It's a large home. You, d- you don't know that they're not still there, but you take the time to see what's missing and... That there's jewelry missing and that there's money missing. And then, I don't know, just the whole demeanor, uh, the sound of her voice. It's, it's very strange in this 911 call. But um, the police get there and they did not find an intruder, but they did find uh, Dr. Schwartz. He was there. Um, he was lying in a pool of blood and he, it appeared he had been shot in the uh, head and the neck. He had been strangled and stabbed. So... Really Just covering the bases there. Violent, yes, absolutely, absolutely violent death. Um, investigators looked at Dr. Schwartz's inner circle for suspected um, murderers. And 10 months later, Leo, the handyman, the, the guy that worked for him uh, for years, who was his friend, who he gave free health care to and uh, was paying over $100,000 a year, was arrested and charged. And 
apparently his DNA, Leo's DNA, was all over the shirt that was on Dr. Schwartz's body. And Leo says that he didn't do it. He says he's innocent. He says that he went into the house one day because Rebecca asked him to go get her purse when she forgot it. And then he saw Dr. Schwartz on the ground in blood. He said that he shook him to see if he was alive. And when he realized he wasn't alive, he was, af- he was afraid to call the police because he was afraid he would be deported. And Leo says that when he grabbed Rebecca's purse, he saw a knife in it. And when he brought it to her, he confronted her about it and said, what have you done? And she said, you know why I did it. If you say anything, you're never going to see a penny. So apparently he had invested some money into some real estate or, or something, according to him. So that was that was his version of events of, of what happened. It's kind of complicated and convoluted and there's some... A lot of twists and turns. Yeah. And there, there's also some uh, um, an account where uh, someone... I guess overheard Rebecca talking to her son about killing Dr. Schwartz. So one of Rebecca's friends said that before Dr. Schwartz was found dead, that Rebecca had been acting very strange. Okay. For example, she showed up one time unannounced at 9 a.m. drinking beer. (laughs) And, you know, for some people that might be appropriate, but apparently these people did not think it was, they didn't, they were not a fan of day drinking. And so Leo At least said, that she just like walked in and took a beer, sat on the couch and was kind of freaking out a little. I mean, it is strange. I don't care who you are, whether people, I know people, especially people that work night shift are like, hey, this, I worked, I just worked all night. This is, this is like my evening time. So they will go oh, like yeah. have mimosas we or something. We used to get morning beer and donuts. Right. So it's, that's totally understandable. So I feel like us, because we're nurses, we read that and we're just like, well, yeah, okay, maybe the morning beer doesn't seem so... It doesn't seem that odd. Weird. But for most people, most people don't just, um, you know, have a beer at 9 o'clock in the morning. But what seems so strange about this is the fact that she shows up unannounced and then just goes and gets a beer from from their... You know, it's not like, oh, we're all coming, you know, coming over for mimosas and and brunch, you know. It's she was acting like she was nervous about something. So that's what seemed odd about it. Um, Leo said that about a year before uh, everything happened, Rebecca asked him in front of her son, if he knew someone she could hire to kill Dr. Schwartz. Leo said that he didn't want to be involved and didn't really understand what was going on, but he remembers her son looking at her like she was insane for saying that. And around that time, uh, when Dr. Schwartz was alive, he had switched his estate plan, leaving everything to Rebecca and nothing to his children. And no one really understands why he would know. do this. Seems a little sketchy. It, it does seem very sketchy because um, now some think that she was blackmailing him um, because no one knew about him spending nine years in prison for a murder when he was, you know, back in 1961. And so a lot of people think, well, she probably blackmailed him he didn't want his son and all of his colleagues and everyone around him to know that that had happened that's just a theory though so pretty much that's kind of where we are i mean as of january i think of of 2020 the trial that he and he's been arrested and he's awaiting trial uh he was trying to get his own he's trying to raise money for 
his own private attorney, Leo is, but I don't think he was able to do that. So he's having to use a pub, uh, public defender and he's not real happy with how they're handling the case. Rebecca has not been charged with anything. Now, that's kind of where we are with this story. It's it's kind of bizarre. I don't know that, you know, we, we can't really say for sure what happened. Obviously, there's there, there's a lot of speculation, but this trial hasn't happened yet. And, and who knows, they could end up um, arresting his wife, but they they haven't so. so far. She seems shady. Did you hear the, the interview with her or her, her response to the lawyers and the investigators? She was just, you know, pleading the fifth, like, I, I refuse to say anything. Oh, yeah. So she didn't say a word. Yeah. yeah. Well, she probably knows that I better just keep my mouth shut and not say anything, anything, I, you know, because yeah. even if you're innocent, if you talk, people will take your words and just twist them around. So. True. And, I, you know, I've done enough of these stories, too, to know that sometimes people can look so guilty. Uh, I mean, so guilty. And then something happens and the, the case is like blown wide open and all of a sudden you find out, what? You know, I just knew that person did it. So I don't know. I, I reserve judgment. I don't want to say for sure, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I definitely uh, think there's some, some shady stuff going on. And just, just that 911 call alone, it's, it sounded yeah. very, I mean, just too calm, you know, just like not even a stunned calm, not like a... Oh my gosh, I'm in shock. I just walked in and found my my husband. Like because she didn't, no. she wasn't acting like it was she like, didn't see him. I just killed him. my husband. Kind of calm. It was like I've got to get my story <laughs> out there. I've got to, you know, this yeah. this call is being recorded, and I want to make sure I say everything just right. You know, kind of stage everything Definitely. out. Yeah. So that's our bad doctor story. I, like I said at the beginning, I don't know that he necessarily was a bad doctor because uh, apparently. He lived the rest of his life once he became a physician trying to be a good person from everyone, uh, everyone's account around him. That's kind of how he was. He was a really nice person, um, did a lot of wonderful things for people, and I guess maybe spent the rest of his life trying to atone for what he did. Seems like it. Yeah, seems reasonable. So our good doctor story is so is so interesting to me because you know I hospitals are just overrun with COVID patients right now. It is just crazy, or at least they are in my area. And these people are We've so got quite a few as well. Yeah, and they're so sick. Uh, once these people go on a ventilator, it is really difficult to get them get them off the ventilator. And so um, they're just so far gone by that point. Mm-hmm. It's bad. It just really affects some people so badly. And it's not necessarily someone who was going to, quote, die anyway, as I've heard some people say. So <laughs> I, I understand people have comorbidities and that's going to play some into it. But that doesn't mean that they were going to die necessarily. People live for years and years, decades, taking blood pressure medicine and yeah. managing their diabetes and, and that sort of thing. So it, I found it interesting my husband sent me a video of this doctor uh, who was testifying. And I don't really understand how all of this stuff works as far as why these tests. I don't even know. I don't even really understand why these testimonies are happening or what it is, but they're testifying before, I guess, state governments. I don't understand it really, Brian. (laughs) And on like news networks and things and YouTube videos, like 
part part of it seems like a publicity stunt, but mm-hmm. part of it seems like they're really trying to do some good. Well, yeah, and this particular guy, you know, and I try to stay away from that stuff just because I'm just, I I don't really trust anyone. <laughs> I never, I, I don't, I always think there could be an angle up from anyone. And so I just, I don't know. Are you giving me all the You've been information? You've podcast too long. Yeah, I don't trust anyone. I have. I really have. I, I, I could. I feel like anyone can twist anyone. Any anyone can twist anyone's words. You know, every which way, or leave out information. And so, I just don't. I don't trust a lot of things. But this guy is a physician who is working, quote, the front lines, as they say. He is a critical care medicine pulmonary doctor. Basically, what he is saying is that, and I was trying to find his name. Dr. Pierre Corey of, of Wisconsin, and he gets up to testify uh, about this. He basically says that there is a medication that can be repurposed. It's already in existence. It's been around for a long time, and it's been used as an anti-infective. It's used a lot in animals for worms. It's called ivermectin, and he said that they've been using this medication in trials, and it's been working. He said that there's one area that they had 800 people who took that medicine who had who had coronavirus they tested positive they took the medicine none of them got sick and he said then he had there was a whole nother group of people of 400 who tested positive for coronavirus and they took they did not take the um, ivermectin and 58% of those people got sick those are really that's a Seems very like it's worth looking at that's a significant i th- that kind of research is crazy and it when I was looking it up, there is a lot of information out there about this, but a lot of it is from like um, over the summer, and I guess they were talking about doing it, and then in October, there's a couple of articles about it. This is this just happened. This is Tuesday, December the eighth, and this this testimony just happened. My husband sent me the video, and so I was watching yeah, it, was it this morning, right? Right. So you and I were about to do this, and I was like, I really want to talk about this because it's so fresh the information and it's so fascinating and if it's true why aren't we doing this it's a medication that is approved by the fda it is not some brand new medicine that we don't know anything about we understand its side effects we know how it works you know it's approved by the fda not usually those things still have to be approved for like off-label use sure and that's understandable but that can happen so why is it not happening i mean we we're about, you know, we're, we're all getting this vaccine, or at least I'm getting it. <laughs> it seems like nobody else is. Everybody else seems to th- say they're not going to get it. <laughs> not that I was a little... I just want to look at the data first. I know. I was a little hesitant at first, too. And I was honestly being like, I don't think I'm going to do it. And then I just started thinking about it. And I thought, no one, we're never going to get out of this if people aren't willing to take the vaccine. So I'll just take it. And then I'll let everybody else know how I did. <laughs> Maybe... There you go. Be like, I didn't you can die. Be the guinea pig. I'll be the guinea pig. <laughs> see, I didn't die. Or maybe I will. And then you guys be like, see, I told you. <laughs> yeah, should have done it. <laughs> or it'll turn everyone into zombies, and we'll finally have the zombie apocalypse. You never know. Oh, I'll get to be a zombie. That's not, that's not a bad thing. See, I always find the light in all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I just think that Dr. Corey is a good doctor for. Obviously, he's just been working really hard in COVID intensive care and working on this committee. And then he goes before, you know, on national television. And he was so passionate. If you 
will go look. I think you, if you probably look on YouTube, you could find it. Dr. Corey um, testifying about COVID or whatever in ivermectin. I don't know because my husband sent me the link, but he's very passionate. And if you watch the whole thing, it's hard not to believe him. I mean, I, I believe he's telling the truth and it's hard to argue with that, you know, with with the information. I believe just, everyone's trying to do the best they can. Like, yeah, no one wants more harm. They're all trying to help. Mm hmm. Um, it's just whether or not it's going to help or not. We need more studies. I agree. I do think that, you know, there are people who stand to make a lot of money um, off of this one way or another. And so for that reason, I, I have a hard time trusting everybody. <laughs> so because I just feel like, OK, what yeah, you, I agree, you know, but I don't know. I'm, I know that I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to wear masks everywhere and <laughs> where, you know, I could just go to work and just be stressed out like a normal stressed out nurse, not just like COVID stressed out. <laughs> it's it's like... COVID stress is different. It's just like on steroids. It's like, it, it's just another level. Which has shown to help. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's COVID <laughs> on steroids, which should be making the situation better, but it's not. Well, <laughs> well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Remind everybody where they can find, where can everybody find you? Uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's at the IV guy or the IV guy.com. Uh, you can just type in IV guy in Google and I'll, I'll be the first one up. Yeah, it comes up very first thing as soon as you type in the IV guy. And you guys know you can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. If you tried to email me over the weekend... I did something stupid with my <laughs> Google account, and then I wasn't getting emails. Apparently, a couple of people were like, Tina, I tried to send you an email, and it, it came back and said it didn't exist. And I was like, oh my gosh, such an idiot. And of course, I was at work. So if you happen to send me an email, <laughs> just send it again. I'll get it this time. And you can find us on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse and GMB and podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And I just want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, just be a good nurse.